Section 20 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 6, Part 2. The unfortunate king did not arrive at Gravesend till seven in the evening, wet and weary, and long after dark. He was compelled to sleep there that night, at the house of Mr. Ekins, an attorney. The next morning, James says, he received a blank pass from the Prince of Orange, which he had desired, in order to send one over to the Queen, believing her landed before that in France with her son. The expression is a little mysterious, as if the King meant to enable Mary Beatrice to return to him again, according to her earnest wish, after he had been so eager to send her away, another symptom of the unsettled state of his mind. At ten the next morning, he proceeded, under the escort of the Dutch guards, to Rochester, where he took up his quarters in the house of Sir Richard Head. During the three days that he remained at Rochester, Turner, Bishop of Eli, sent daily to entreat him not to withdraw. Every hour the king received visits from gentlemen and officers, who begged him to remain in England. While others reasoned with calmness, the fiery Dundee endeavored to rouse the desponding spirit of his heartbroken sovereign. Make your stand here, said he, and summon your subjects to their allegiance. Give me your commission. I will undertake to collect ten thousand men of your disbanded army together, and with them I will carry your standard through England and drive the Dutch and their prince before you. The king said, he believed it might be done, but it would cause a civil war, and he would not do so much mischief to the English nation, which he loved, and doubted not but his people would soon come to their senses again. Instead of following the counsels of gallant Dundee, he sat inactively, repeating to himself, God help me, whom can I trust? My own children have forsaken me. Burnett pretends that James was fixed in his determination by an earnest letter from the queen, reminding him of his promise to follow her, and urging its fulfillment in very imperious language. This letter, Burnett says, was intercepted, opened, and read, and then forwarded to the king at Rochester. Persons who could be guilty of the baseness of breaking the seal of such a letter would not hesitate at misrepresenting its contents, which were doubtless perfectly consistent with the feminine tenderness of the queen's character, her adoring fondness for her husband, and her fears for his personal safety. It is certain that James had made up his mind to follow his wife and son when he quitted Whitehall the first time, and that nothing could shake his resolution. He was playing the game into the hands of his subtle adversary, who was impatient for him to be gone, and had ordered the back premises of the house at Rochester, where he lodged, to be left unguarded, to allow him every facility for escape. Before sitting down to supper, on the evening of Saturday, December the 22nd, James drew up the well-known paper containing the reasons which impelled him to withdraw for the present. In this declaration, the unfortunate monarch sums up, in simple but forceful language, the outrages and insults to which he had been subjected by the Prince of Orange, but when he alludes to the unprincipled aspersion on the birth of his son, his style becomes impassioned. What had I then to expect, he asks, from one 
who by all arts had taken such pains to make me appear as black as hell to my own people as well as to all the world besides his concluding words are neither those of a tyrant nor a bigot i appeal says he to all who are considering men and have had experience whether anything can make this nation so great and flourishing as liberty of conscience some of our neighbors dread it this paper james gave to the earl of middleton with orders that it should be printed as soon as he was gone he then took leave of his few faithful followers and retired to bed between twelve and one in the morning of the twenty-third he rose and attended only by his natural son the duke of berwick mr biddulph and Lavady, the husband of the prince of wales nurse left the house by a back stair and postern door and so through the garden where captain macdonald waited to guide him to the place where captain trevanion waited with a boat these two faithful officers rode his majesty and his companions to a sorry fishing smack that lay a little below sheerness in this vessel king james crossed the wintry waves and as usual encountered very rough weather many hardships and some danger the circumstances under which james left england have been illustrated by a noble young author of our own times in a pathetic poem in which the following striking lines occur we thought of ancient lear with the tempest overhead discrowned betrayed abandoned but not could break his will not mary his false regan nor anne his goneril the tragedy of real life is sometimes strangely mingled with circumstances of a comic character which appear the more ridiculous perhaps from the revulsion of feeling they were apt to produce on persons laboring under the excitement of excessive grief king james in the midst of his distress during this melancholy voyage felt his mirth irresistibly excited when he saw the brave captain trevanion attempting to fry some bacon for his refection in a frying pan that had a hole in it which that gallant officer was compelled to stop with a pitched rag at the sight of this expedient the king gave way to immoderate laughter which was renewed when the captain proceeded to tie a cord round an old cracked can to make it in a condition to hold the drink they had prepared for him a keen perception of the ludicrous is often a happy provision of nature to preserve an overcharged heart from breaking under the pressure of mortal sorrow it was well for the fallen majesty of england that he could laugh at things which were melancholy indications of his calamitous reverse of fortune the laughter however was medicinal for he ate and drank heartily of the coarse fare that was set before him and always declared that he never enjoyed a meal more in his life james landed at the small village of amblitus near boulogne at three o'clock in the morning of december the twenty-fifth being christmas day old style mary beatrice meantime whom we left at montreux reached abbeville on the twenty-first where she slept and passed the saturday which was kept in france as new year's day new style she arrived at poix on the sunday at two o'clock where she was apprised that louis the fourteenth intended to assign one of the most stately palaces in france the chateau of saint germain for her residence when her majesty approached beauvais the bishop and all the principal people in the town came out to meet and welcome her the same had been done pursues our authority in all other places through which she passed but this bishop offered particular marks of respect and generous attention to the royal fugitive 
and she remained at beauvais till tuesday the twenty fifth where she received the welcome news that our king had left london which joyful intelligence greatly consoled her and her little court her happiness would have been far greater could she have known how near that beloved consort was to her as soon as louis the fourteenth was apprised of the landing of king james he dispatched one of his equerries monsieur legrand to apprise the anxious queen of that event and to present his complimentary greetings to her on his own account the dauphiness sent the duke de saint simon with friendly messages from herself they found the royal traveller at beaumont the royal tidings they communicated appeared to console her for all her misfortunes raising her eyes to heaven she exclaimed then i am happy and praise god aloud in the fullness of her heart mindful however of the ceremonial observances that were expected of her she composed herself sufficiently to return the compliments which were delivered to her in the name of the king of france the dauphin and the dauphiness with much grace and expressed herself deeply grateful for all the king of france had done for her the gentleman then withdrew leaving her to the free indulgence of her natural emotions while she wrote to the king her husband a letter which she dispatched by mr leyburn one of her equerries who had joined her after her retreat to france when we returned says monsieur d'angu who was one of the deputation from the court of france we found her majesty still transported with joy the sudden transition from misery to happiness is always trying to a sensitive temperament mary beatrice who had been enabled to subdue the violence of her grief by pious resignation to the will of god had borne up under the fatigue of mind and body and the tortures of suspense but the revulsion of feeling was too much for her corporeal powers and she succumbed under it the person whoever it was who has continued the narrative of her flight from england with a diary of her progress to st germain after relating her arrival at beaumont and the happy news which greeted them at that town says we were beside ourselves with the joy which this intelligence caused us but this pleasure was soon interrupted the queen was seized with such a violent attack of pain that for two hours her agonies were so excruciating that our hearts were pierced with the most poignant concern but thanks to god the spasms abated after a time the duchess of portsmouth who was at the court of france with her son the duke of richmond had the effrontery to propose coming to meet the exiled queen of england but the duc de lazun sent word to her that her majesty would see no one till she arrived at st germain mary beatrice made an exception from this rule in favor of ladies whose rank and virtues qualified them to offer her marks of sympathy and attention when the duchess of nevers came to pay her a visit at beaumont she received her most affectionately and kissed her in the afternoon of december twenty eighth mary beatrice drew near st germain louis the fourteenth came in state to meet and welcome her with his son the dauphin his brother monsieur all the princes of the blood and the officers of his household his cavalcade consisted of a hundred coaches and six he awaited the approach of his fair and royal guest at chateau a picturesque village on the banks of the seine below the heights of st germain en laye as soon as her majesty's cortege drew near louis with his son and brother descended from his coach and advanced to greet her supposing that she had been in the first carriage which he had sent his officers to stop 
that carriage however only contained the prince of wales his sub-governess lady strickland and his nurses they all alighted out of respect to the most christian king who took the infant prince in his arms kissed and tenderly embraced him and made the unconscious babe a gracious speech promising to protect and cherish him louis is said to have been struck with the beauty of the royal infant on whom he lavished more caresses than he had ever been known to bestow on any child of his own the queen had in the meantime alighted from her coach and was advancing towards his majesty louis hastened to meet and salute her she made the most graceful acknowledgments for his sympathy and kindness both for herself and in the name of the king her husband louis replied that it was a melancholy service he had rendered her on this occasion but that he hoped it would be in his power to be more useful soon he presented the dauphin and monsieur to her in due form then led her to his own coach where he placed her at his right hand the dauphin and monsieur sat opposite to their majesties the queen says dangu had with her the marchioness of powis and the signora anna vittoria montecuculi an italian whom she loves very much and thus in regal pomp was the exiled queen of england conducted by louis the fourteenth to the palace of saint germain en laye which was henceforth to be her home cheered by the courteous and delicate attention with which she was treated by the sovereign of france and anticipating a happy reunion with her beloved consort mary beatrice smiled through her tears and chatted alternately with the king the dauphin and monsieur as they slowly ascended the lofty hill on which the royal chateau of saint germain is seated she always called louis sire though the late queen his wife and the dauphiness only addressed him as monsieur when they alighted in the inner court of the palace louis after placing everything there at her command led her by the hand to the apartments appropriated to the use of the prince of wales which were those of the children of france this nursery suite had been newly fitted up for the prince of wales here the king took leave of her majesty she offered to attend him to the head of the stairs but he would by no means permit it monsieur and madame montechevreux the state keepers of the palace were there to do the honors of the household to the royal guest who was treated and served in all respects as a queen her apartments were sumptuously furnished nothing had been omitted that could be of use or comfort to her and the most exquisite taste and munificence had been displayed in the arrangement of her dressing-room and especially her table among the splendid toilette service that courted her acceptance mary beatrice saw a peculiar elegant casket of which Turol, the king's upholsterer presented her with the key this casket contained six thousand louis doors a delicate method devised by the generous monarch of france for relieving her pecuniary embarrassments mary beatrice however did not discover the gold till the next morning for notwithstanding the significant looks and gestures with which Turol presented the key of this important casket her heart was too full to permit her to bestow a single thought upon it that night king james had sent his son berwick express to earn her future favor by bringing the intelligence that he was to sleep at bretuil and would arrive at saint germain towards the close of the following day mary beatrice wept and laughed alternately with hysterical emotion at these tidings the next morning louis and the dauphin sent to make formal inquiries after the health of the royal traveller and her son 
overcome by all she had gone through she was compelled to keep her chamber at six in the evening the king of france with the dauphin monsieur and the duc de chartres came to pay her majesty a visit she was in bed but admitted these distinguished guests louis came and seated himself on her bolster the dauphin stood near him without any ceremony chatting in the friendly and affectionate manner which their near relationship to the king her husband warranted the chamber was full of french courtiers who had followed their sovereign in the course of half an hour louis was informed that the king of england was entering the chateau on which he left the queen and hastened to greet and welcome his unfortunate cousin they met in the hall of guards james entered at one door as louis advanced to meet him by the other james approached with a slow and faltering step and overpowered with his grateful sense of the generous and friendly manner in which his queen and son had been received bowed so low that it was supposed he would have thrown himself at the feet of his royal kinsman if louis had not prevented it by taking him in his arms and embracing him most cordially three or four times they conversed in a low voice apart for about a quarter of an hour then louis presented the dauphin monsieur and the cardinal de benzi to his majesty and after this ceremonial conducted him to the apartment of the queen to whom he playfully presented him with these words madame i bring you a gentleman of your acquaintance whom you will be very glad to see mary beatrice uttered a cry of joy and melted into tears and james astonished the french courtiers by clasping her to his bosom with passionate demonstrations of affection before everybody the king of england says one of the eyewitnesses of this touching scene closely embraced the queen his spouse in the presence of the whole world forgetting every restraint in the transport of beholding that fair and faithful partner of his life once more after all their perils and sufferings james remained long enfolded in the arms of his weeping queen kind and sympathizing as louis the fourteenth was to the royal exiles there was a want of consideration in allowing any eye to look upon the raptures of such a meeting as soon as the first gush of feeling had little subsided louis led james to the apartments of the prince of wales and showed him that his other treasure was safe and surrounded with all the royal splendor to which his birth entitled him he then reconducted his guest to the ruelle of the queen's bed and there took his leave james offered to attend his majesty of france to the head of the stairs but louis would not permit it i do not believe says louis that either of us know the proper ceremonial to be observed on these occasions because they are so rare and therefore i believe we should do well in waiving ceremony altogether it was noticed however that louis with his usual scrupulous attention to courtesy always gave james the right hand on taking his final leave he added it is to-day like a visit to me you will come and see me to-morrow at versailles where i shall do the honors and after to-morrow i shall come again to visit you and as it will be your home you shall treat me as you like louis added to these delicate marks of friendship the welcome present of ten thousand pounds which he sent to his unfortunate kinsman the following day in the way least calculated to wound his pride the next day the queen sent lord powis to inquire after the health of the dauphiness but he was not permitted to see her the chateau of saint germain which was assigned by louis the fourteenth for the residence of the exiled king and queen of england was one of the most beautiful and healthy of all the palaces of france 
james was already familiar with the place having passed some years there in his boyhood and early youth when a fugitive in france with the queen his mother and the other members of his family who resided chiefly at saint germain the remembrance of his father's death the sorrows and vicissitudes that had clouded the morning of his days must have been painfully renewed by returning to those scenes after an interval of eight and twenty years as a fugitive once more and the only survivor of those who had been the companions of his first adversity mother brothers sisters all were dead nearer and dearer ties of kindred his own daughters those who owed not only their being but the high place they held in the world the legitimacy which invested them with the power of injuring him had proved false the son of his beloved sister the princess of orange his own son-in-law had driven him from his throne and those whom he loved best on earth his wife and infant son were involved in his fall yet james bore these calamities with a degree of philosophy which not only astonished but offended the french nobility who excitable themselves expected to see the fallen king display the same emotions as the hero of a tragedy exhibits on the stage they called his calm endurance coldness and insensibility because they could not understand the proud reserve of the english character or appreciate the delicacy of that deep sorrow which shrinks from observation it was the wish of james and his queen to live as private persons at saint germain in that retirement which is always desired by the afflicted but it was not permitted the sensitive mind of mary beatrice received no pleasure from the royal splendor with which the munificence of louis the fourteenth had surrounded her she felt the state of dependence to which herself and her unfortunate lord were reduced as a degradation and every little incident that served to remind her of it gave her pain her bedchamber at saint germain was hung with a superb set of tapestry from the designs of lebrun and the upholsterer had with artistical regard to pictorial effect chosen the alcove as a fittest place for the piece representing the tent of darius the fallen queen of england could not repose herself on her bed without having the pathetic scene of the family of that unfortunate king throwing themselves at the feet of alexander always before her eyes she felt the analogy between her situation and theirs so keenly that one day she exclaimed in the anguish of her heart am i not sensible enough of our calamities without being constantly reminded of them by that picture one of her ladies of the bedchamber repeated this observation to the french officers of the household and they instantly removed the tableau of the royal suppliants and replaced it with another representing a triumph the queen reproved her faithful attendant for mentioning a passionate burst of feeling which appeared like a reproach to her generous benefactor as if she imagined him capable of insulting her in her adversity it is possible that she might suspect some little ostentation on the part of her officers in the choice of the tapestry the court of saint germain was arranged by louis on the model of his own the exiled king and queen found all proper officers of state gentlemen ushers and guards ready to receive them the french state officers and attendants were quickly superseded by the noble english scotch and irish emigrants who followed the fortunes of the exiled king and queen the fidelity of the queen's household was remarkable it is an interesting fact that almost all her attendants applied to the prince of orange for passports to follow her into france william granted the passes 
but outlawed all who used them and confiscated their property an elegant poem of the present times alludes to the sacrifices incurred by one of the attached adherents of james's cause in these pretty lines yet who for powis would not mourn that he no more must know his fair red castle on the hill and the pleasant lands below whole families preferred going into exile rather than to transfer their allegiances to william and mary this generous spirit was by no means confided to the roman catholic aristocracy instances of fidelity equally noble are recorded of the members of the church of england and even of menial servants in the royal household the queen's old coachman who had formerly served oliver cromwell in that capacity followed his royal mistress to saint germain was reinstated in his office and continued to drive her state coach till he died at an advanced age those ladies of the bedchamber who were compelled to remain in england with their husbands and families like lady isabella wentworth and mrs dawson rendered their royal mistress the most important service of all by continuing to bear true witness of her when it became the fashion to calumniate and revile her they courageously confuted her slanderers on more occasions than one even the daughter of the false sunderland the young countess of arran bore constant testimony to the legitimacy of the little prince and of the virtues of the exiled queen during the brief period she survived the revolution louis the fourteenth allowed james and mary beatrice fifty thousand francs per month for the support of their household they objected at first to the largeness of the sum but found it in the end insufficient to enable them to extend adequate relief to the necessities of their impoverished followers at the first court held by the exiled king and queen at saint germain james looked old and worn with fatigue and suffering of mary beatrice it was said by madame de sevigny the queen of england's eyes are always tearful but they are large and very dark and beautiful her complexion is clear but somewhat pale her mouth is too large for perfect beauty but her lips are pouting and her teeth lovely her shape is fine and she has much mind everything she says is marked with excellent good sense it was the desire of louis the fourteenth that the dauphiness and the other princesses and ladies of the court of france should pay a ceremonial visit of welcome to the queen of england the next day but this was an object that required more than his power to accomplish the dauphiness fearing that a fauteuil would not be accorded to her in the presence of her britannic majesty feigned sickness as an excuse for not performing the courtesy prescribed by her august father-in-law to his royal guests she kept her bed obstinately for several days madame the wife of the king's brother said she had a right to a fauteuil on her left hand and that she would not go unless that were allowed neither would the duchesses without being permitted to have their tabarets the same as in their own court monsieur was very sulky withal because the queen had not kissed him mary beatrice though naturally lofty behaved with much good sense on this occasion she referred the matter entirely to the decision of the king of france requesting him to decide whether the princes and duchesses were to be received according to the custom of the court of france or of england tell me said the queen to louis how you wish it to be i will salute whomsoever you think proper but it is not the custom in england for me to kiss any man the king decided that it should be arranged according to the etiquette of france madame de sevigny a few days after records the important fact 
that the queen of england had kissed monsieur and that he was in consideration of having received that honour contented to dispense with a fatuil in the presence of king james and would make no further complaints to the king his brother mary beatrice and her lord though deprived of the power and consequence of crowned heads found themselves more than ever fettered with those rigid ceremonials and etiquettes which are certainly not among the least of the pains and penalties of royalty the princesses and female nobility of france are scarcely sane on the point of precedency and the importance that was placed by these full-grown children on the privilege of being entitled to the distinction of a tabaret was ludicrous it was an age of toys and trifles but the irritation and excitement caused by frivolous contentions was to the full as great as if the energies of the parties concerned had been employed for objects worthy of the attention of rational beings the courts of the stuart sovereigns both in scotland and england had been conducted on more sensible principles but at saint germain james and his queen were compelled to adopt the same rigid ceremonials and etiquettes as those which were used in the court of france and to entrench themselves behind the same formal observances or they would have been treated as if they had fallen not only from regal power but royal rank at length it was settled that the dauphin should only sit on a pliant or folding chair in the presence of king james but when in company with the queen he should be entitled to a fauteuil the arrangement of this knotty point did not free the royal exiles from perplexing attacks on their patience in their new position the princes of the blood had their pretensions also and it was a much easier matter to satisfy them than to settle the point with their ladies the princesses of the blood were three or four days before they would attend the court of the queen of england and when they were there the duchesses would not follow them they insisted on being treated not only according to the custom of the court of france where they had the privilege of sitting in the presence of the sovereign but according to that of england also where the monarch kisses ladies of their rank on their presentation in a word the duchesses of france demanded to be kissed by king james and to sit in the presence of his queen notwithstanding the pleasing impression made by the graceful and conciliatory manners of mary beatrice and the general interest excited by her beauty and her misfortunes a party founded on jealousy was excited against her among the french ladies by the princesses king james returned the visit of the french sovereign in state december twenty ninth and was received by that monarch with all the honors due to royalty louis presented him in form to the dauphiness she stood at the door of her chamber with her ladies to receive him and they conversed for a few minutes james then called on the dauphin and talked like a connoisseur of the fine pictures cabinets china and other articles of vertu with which his apartments were decorated his majesty afterwards visited his brother-in-law monsieur madame and all the princes of the blood the next day the dauphin came to saint germain and made formal state calls on james his queen and the infant prince of wales mary beatrice ordered that he should have a fauteuil in her presence but a lower one than that in which she sat the dauphiness pleaded illness as an excuse for not accompanying him mary beatrice accepted the apology and determined to waive ceremony by paying the first visit she told the dauphin that she only delayed going to versailles to pay her compliment to the king and the dauphiness till she could procure a dress suitable for the occasion in making her toilette 
for the court of versailles she knew that she must pay due attention to the prevailing modes on this occasion she was happily so successful that she had the good fortune to please the most fastidious of the french ladies when the queen of england went to visit the dauphiness says madame de sevigne with enthusiasm she was dressed to perfection she wore a robe of black velvet over an elegant petticoat her hair was beautifully arranged her figure resembles that of the princess de conti and is very majestic the king of france came himself to hand her from her coach he led her into his presence chamber and placed her in a chair of state higher than his own after conversing with her about half an hour louis conducted her to the apartment of the dauphiness who came to the door to receive her the queen expressed some surprise i thought madame said she i should have found you in bed madame replied the dauphiness i was resolved to rise that i might properly receive the honour done me by your majesty louis the fourteenth withdrew because the mighty laws of court etiquette forbade his invalid daughter-in-law to sit in an armchair in his presence when he had departed the portentous ceremony of taking seats was successfully achieved the exiled queen was inducted into the place of honour the dauphiness seated herself in a fauteuil on her right hand and madame the duchess of orleans on her left and the three little sons of the dauphiness were perched in three armchairs the princesses and duchesses made their appearance and occupied their tabourets round the room in short the pretended invalid held a crowded court in her bedchamber on this occasion and was much elated at having succeeded in inducing the queen of england to pay her the first visit his majesty of france being privately informed when mary beatrice rose to take her leave came with his wonted courtesy to lead her downstairs and place her in her coach when louis returned to the apartment of the dauphiness he was eloquent in his commendations of their royal guest and evidently with the view of suggesting to his german daughter-in-law that she would do well to imitate so perfect a model of regal grace and dignity he emphatically added see what a queen ought to be he praised her charming manners and her ready wit and expressed his admiration of her fortitude in adversity and her passionate love for her husband from that hour it became the fashion of the court of france to cite the exiled queen of england as the perfection of grace elegance beauty and female virtue the grand monarch had said it and from his decision there could be no appeal the french duchesses who to please the dauphiness had protested that if the receptions of the court of saint germain were to be modelled after the customs of that of versailles nothing should induce them to kiss the hem of the queen of england's robe were now ready to kiss her feet the next day at four o'clock precisely mary beatrice was favoured with a solemn state visit from the duchess of orleans her daughters the duchess of guise and all the princesses of the blood she kissed them all gave a fauteuil to the duchess of orleans and less honourable chairs called pliants to the princesses as far as regarded their own claims the demi-royalty of france were satisfied but they took the liberty of requesting the queen to explain why she permitted the signora anna montecuculi to occupy a tabouret in her presence as she had not the rank of a duchess her majesty condescended to explain that she allowed her that privilege as the lady-in-waiting these ladies who were so rigid in their notions of the importance attached to chairs and stools 
made no exception against the appearance of the infamous Duchess of Portsmouth, who also occupied a tabouret in that exclusive circle, having, with the persevering effrontery of her class and character, succeeded in obtaining an appointment as one of the ladies of the bedchamber in the household of James's consort at Saint-Germain. James was compelled to bestow several shadowy titles on his followers, to enable their ladies to hold appointments in his queen's bedchamber and sit in presence of the french court he made lord powis a duke to entitle his lady to a tabouret there are four ladies of the queen of england says dangu whom she will have seated when there are either princesses or duchesses of france present these are lady powis as an english duchess madame montecuculi whom she has made countess of almonde as a lady of honour and the ladies Sussex and Walgrave, as the daughters of King James. The first name was, however, the daughter of Charles the Second. After the Dauphiness had returned the visit of the English Queen, Her Majesty came again to Versailles to call on her. She arrived precisely at four o'clock, the orthodox hour. The King received her this time in the Hall of Guards, and led her into the State Presence Chamber, and gave her the place of honor. They conversed a long time together, and then he led her by the hand through the gallery to the door of the apartments of the dauphiness who received her there and conducted her into her chamber they were getting pretty well acquainted now and their conversation was easy and lively when her majesty retired the dauphiness conducted her as far as the guard door where they parted mutually satisfied with each other then the queen paid her ceremonial visit to the dauphin who came to receive her in his guard room and conducted her to his presence chamber, where they were both seated for some time in one fauteuil, probably one of those double chairs of state, such as that which is shown in Queen Mary's chamber at Holyrood Palace. The queen was charmed with Monsieur's cabinets, and good-naturedly spoke much in praise of the Dauphiness, for whom, however, this prince cherished very little tenderness. When the queen left the apartments of the Dauphin, he reconducted her to the spot where he had received her, and she proceeded to visit Monsieur and then Madame. At these visits, Lady Powis and Madame Montecuculi were allowed seats, the one as a duchess, the other as lady-in-waiting to Her Majesty. End of section 20